The Canadian federal election of 2011 was tarnished by a minor scandal that, in some parts of the country, became, at least in terms of perception, substantially more than minor. During this election, a series of robocalls were made to voters, primarily to voters who were on a voting demographics list, indicating that they would likely not be voting for the Conservative Party. And those calls contained messages telling the recipients that their voting location had changed. These calls were focused on the Guelph, Ontario electoral district, but it was later revealed that similar calls were received in 247 of Canada's 308 writings, which is what their electoral districts are called, during that election. Now, because of who was on the receiving end of these calls, people who were designated as non-Conservative Party supporters, the Canadian Conservative Party and Prime Minister Stephen Harper were questioned, but they all claimed to have no knowledge of this effort. It was also posited that in some of these areas, particularly those where the final vote counts, were very close. These misinformation-bearing phone calls could have swayed the outcome of the vote in a statistically relevant way. Whether or not that's actually the case, of course, it's difficult to say. What we do know, though, is that after three years of investigation, a federal court judge found that election fraud had taken place in six writings across the country. And he also found that none of the Conservative Party leadership or candidates were involved. He did, however, find that the former director of communications for the conservative candidate in Guelph, a man named Michael Sona, was guilty of, quote, willfully preventing or endeavoring to prevent an elector from voting, end quote. In 2014, Sona was sentenced to nine months in jail and 12 months of probation. Interestingly, although Sona was the only person to be found guilty for this scandal, most of the investigators and the justice who presided over his trial indicated that they believed he had not acted alone. They didn't have enough evidence to pull in and punish anyone else, but they did believe this was a conspiracy to suppress votes, not just the actions of a then-25-year-old who acted rashly. So there are some parallels here, at least in theory, to some of the supposed voter fraud efforts that have happened elsewhere around the world in recent years, very much including here in the U.S., where a panoply of accusations have been made against people from all parties complaining that local elections have been tampered with, usually indirectly, using this same misinformation-based tactic, often making use of phone calls or social media to spread that misinformation to the targeted audience the people who do not support your candidate. What's most fascinating to me about this case, though, which was later referred to as RoboGate by some members of the news media, which I think is pretty cool, is that Michael Sona was able to use off-the-shelf tools, $162.10 in PayPal transactions for automated calling services, and a fake name, Pierre Poutine, if you can believe it, to influence a vote to the tune of up to 4% of the total vote, according to some estimates. 
that 4% figure may or may not actually be accurate, and Guelph is just one of many electoral districts in the country, but that so much leverage can be accomplished with so few resources is pretty astonishing, especially considering how much power is then wielded by those who get into public office. The expense-to-profit ratio has got to be astounding on this sort of thing, when it works anyway. And that ratio would seem to be increasing as the tools required to commit this sort of crime have dropped in price and sophistication. Again, social media has been a key component of most of the recent voter suppression efforts, and part of what's made these networks so popular for political messages is the relatively low cost of accessing exactly the people you want to reach. And that's what I want to talk about today. How even as new technologies and systems grant us amazing new abilities for generally beneficent uses, they tend to grant the very same powers in the opposite direction to those who might choose to use them for far less than beneficent purposes. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. It's only recently, because of fairly frequent travel between countries and the consequent need to consistently swap out SIM cards in my phone, that I've kept the same number for more than three or four months at a time. So my personal perspective on this subject matter is a little bit biased by that recent shift. But it does seem, just recently, that there has been a steep rise in robocalls here in the United States. And this is something that even I have noticed, despite my intentionally low levels of interaction with the phone and somewhat strange relationship with phone numbers, these robocalls have become a daily thing. And this is not an observation based purely on anecdote. The phone software company Umail, which, among other things, offers a robocall blocking service, estimates that 3.4 billion robocalls were placed in the United States in April of 2018 alone. That's about 900 million more than were placed in April of last year according to the service. And this has become such a huge issue that it's one of the few points of agreement within an otherwise generally polarized U.S. House and Senate. Both have recently held hearings on the subject of robocalls and have introduced legislation on the topic. Some of that legislation has already passed with bipartisan support. Those have mainly been acts that give more powers to regulatory bodies when it comes to policing some of the fraud that takes place via robocalls, though there are broader acts on the table as well. We will see how many of those other potential legal actions end up being made manifest in the coming year. Though again, it seems to be a pretty popular position to take overall. It's not terribly dangerous to one's re-election potential, in most parts of the country at least, to come down hard on annoying and often illegal robocalls. The article I want to start with today comes from the New York Times, and it is entitled, Yes, It's Bad, Robocalls and Their Scams Are Surging. This piece outlines some of what's currently being done to combat robocalls in general, and the abuses that are enabled or amplified by robocall technologies, along with why it's so difficult to staunch the flow of these types of calls completely. 
And unfortunately, there are some pretty good reasons why these calls have not been stopped and have been getting progressively worse. Not good in the sense that it makes them any less annoying or harmful, but good in that it's relatively clear why this isn't as cut and dry an issue as it might otherwise seem. And knowing about such rationales tends to be a good thing if you want to eventually solve these sorts of problems. And primary among these issues is that there are entire industries that rely on robocall technologies to essentially exist, to do what they do. Call centers working for myriad and varied companies that try to sell you things. Everything from insurance to gold coins to vacation packages to just about anything else you can imagine. They are heavily reliant on robocall technologies for both completely automated services that they offer and for services that work alongside their human employees. Auto dialers, for instance, that connect salespeople to potential customers. And there are parts of the country that are dependent enough on these types of companies that the political pressure is high to win local victories in their favor, which in turn can have federal-level impact by establishing legal precedents. So basically, lobbying local government officials, getting those officials to sway issues in favor of those who use these technologies, and then having those local legal victories set the tone for how things operate elsewhere, at least until someone else comes in and challenges them, which, frankly, is not always a priority, what with all of the other priorities that exist within the government today. There are also groups, like the Consumer Bankers Association, that struggle mightily against robocall-related acts that they consider to be too broad as their constituents, mostly banks, rely on such technologies to offer services to customers and potential customers. However we customers and potential customers might feel about all this, about these groups deciding that they should be legally able to just call us out of the blue and offer their stupid high-interest credit cards and the like, is beside the point. The current FCC, which regulates this space, is considered to be friendly to the robocall, banking, and general sales industries, which means even though they're likely not fully regulatory captured in the sense of being dominated by these industries, they do seem to have a somewhat cozy ideological alignment with them. Which, again, if you are in this industry, and if your personal income or your city's income is reliant on these types of services, that probably sounds pretty good. It would suck for a whole lot of people if stricter regulations were applied to robocall and related technologies. At the same time, current regulations, like the federal do not call list, often work against those who play by the rules, and they tend to favor those who decide that they can afford to risk breaking the law. Legitimate companies who may be offering genuine goods and services, are making fewer calls to potential customers because of these rules, while those with often fraudulent offerings, people calling from India to the U.S. with fake technical support offerings, for instance, 
or as mentioned in that Times article, scammers using auto-dialers to make spoofed phone calls, which basically allows them to seem to be calling from a different number than they actually are, they can make it seem as if they are contacting you from a legitimate, non-scammy company that you're familiar with, and then try to sell you fake goods and services via that entry point. These bad actors are less likely to comply with do-not-call lists and similar regulations, because what they're doing is fraudulent to begin with. They don't care, and the consequences for them, especially if they're overseas, are likely to be minor or non-existent. Now, it's debatable whether or not those companies who want to essentially fill up our voicemail inboxes with what are arguably more legitimate ads, are any more welcome by most people than the fraudsters. I personally do not want anyone who I do not know calling me with what they consider to be wonderful offers for high interest rate credit cards. But the distinction here is important because a lot of the momentum behind the legislation that is currently moving through the government is because of the fraud, the fake offerings, the attempt to fleece people who don't know any better not because of the calls themselves. The calls themselves are seen as something akin to billboards or online advertising. No one actually likes these things, but they are seen as a necessary evil. They are a part of the marketing industry rather than being a scam of some kind. It's notable, though, that a lot of the scam calls that are being made sound very, very similar to the non-scam calls that these companies want to be making more of. The top phone scam topics, what's being offered by these fraudsters as of March 2018, include interest rates, credit cards, student loans, business loans, IRS scams, where they pretend to be from the Internal Revenue Service, search listing scams, usually offering some kind of SEO service, travel scams, pre-approved loan scams, home security scams, and utility related scams, where they pretend to be offering discounted utility services and require more info from the person on the other end of the line to see what they can offer them. In general, all of these scams seek to get more information about the person that they've got on the phone, which makes them very similar to what's often called phishing, which is popular on the internet, particularly via email and social networks, and which involves getting login and other info from people who believe that they are providing those passwords and such to legitimate forms and entities, like service desks. Any time we develop a new technology, fraudsters and scam artists will not be far behind. And in some cases, they will innovate within that space in impressive ways to ensure that they can keep fleecing people on those new platforms effectively. It would all be almost admirable, in a way, if they were not often victimizing some of the most vulnerable people in society with their efforts. It's often the elderly, the handicapped, the economically destitute, who get pulled into these scams. Because the folks on the other end of the line, they know what to offer. They present what seems to be a solution to these people's problems. And while they keep their victim's eyes on that potential way out, they get their credit card number or their home address, or information that they need in order to answer that person's banking login security questions. It's an old idea that is continuously updated for whatever the newest technology allows them to do. And while the online world has provided them with a bigger pool of potential victims than ever before, 
The world of mobile phones and easily accessible, cheap and simple auto-dialers has done the same when it comes to targeting people who are less tech-savvy, but who are at just the right point on the adoption curve to be accessible via a communication channel that they do not generally consider to be threatening. It's a personal device that they keep in their pocket and which allows them to keep in touch with loved ones. And that's very unlike the potentially scary and less familiar computer that they sometimes use. The phone is knowable and familiar, which can make it deceptively effective when it comes to delivering fraud. Now it's here that I think it would be valuable to take a great big step back and address the incentives that drive people to commit fraud of this kind. I am a big believer that very few people wake up in the morning and think, I'm going to be a truly horrible person today. Instead, most people who do bad things justify their harmful behavior by pointing to the reasons that they do it, the outcomes, the incentives that in their mind coerce them into committing fraud or whatever else. In this specific case, but also in related cases like with spammers who flood the internet with spam bots and who pollute online discussion boards and social networks with nonsense and anger-sparking vitriol, the primary motivation tends to be money. Now, this isn't the case 100% of the time. There are plenty of situations in which ideology seems to play a more vital role in the decisions made and tactics used. You could argue that the case I mentioned in the intro, where the Canadian Conservative Party employee used robocall technologies to try to influence an election, was ideologically inspired, at least primarily. And as such, he was able to justify in his own mind that these people he was trying to trick would vote for someone bad, someone other than his candidate. And his candidate, in his mind, was the only correct moral solution. To allow anyone else to get into power would be wrong. And as a consequence, he had an internalized excuse for doing something considered to be wrong by the laws of the land. The potential outcome for him was worth committing the crime. And he had justified his actions internally as being correct, even though they happened to be against the law. The same justification plays out when the incentives are monetary. And because of how most societies are set up today, the monetary incentives tend to bleed over into many other types of incentives as well. Consider that if you don't have money, you can't eat, you can't afford a roof over your head. And in some countries, the U.S. included, you can't afford even the most fundamental health care. Consider, too, that many people have others they care about beyond themselves. So in addition to worrying about their own mental and physical well-being, they are reliant on money and having a certain amount of it if they want to take care of their partner, their kids, their parents, or whomever else. Through that lens, isn't making money, specifically making enough money to guarantee your well-being and your loved one's well-being, and ideally for as long as possible, in perpetuity if you can, isn't that a moral act? Isn't it prudent and correct to do whatever you need to do to get that money so you can keep your kids safe and healthy, keep your partner fed, keep your parents taken care of as they get older and more feeble? With that perspective in mind, it becomes easier to imagine, I think, how some of these scammers, these people committing fraud, justify away their crimes. 
They're not breaking the law, at least not primarily. They're feeding their kids. They're not polluting our information channels and preying on the vulnerable. They're doing what they have to do to survive within an unjust system that doesn't seem to provide them with any tenable alternatives. And it's worth reflecting on the idea that this is not far off from what other legally legitimate businesses force their employees to do much of the time. If you work for a call center, making calls for a bank offering credit cards with terrible interest rates to potential customers who don't know any better, you're not defrauding people in the legal sense, but you are arguably still polluting those very same information channels. If you're sending out spam messages that you euphemistically call marketing collateral, it's still spam. A garden-destroying weed is still a weed, even if you try to convince people it's a beautiful flower that they should be happy to have in their lives. But again, if your society says that if you have no money, you are valueless, you're a burden, you don't deserve to live, then it becomes a lot more thinkable to send out spam. Even though you hate spam, and it becomes a lot more thinkable to victimize the elderly with phony savings scams, even though you would be horrified if your grandparents were ever taken advantage of in the same way. Beyond those fundamental survival-level incentives, we also see another type of incentive that's a little bit trickier to define, but which we might semi-accurately refer to as the call of the commons, which is a reference to the tragedy of the commons, which means basically if we aren't using these technologies in this way, and saturating the attention of the worldwide reachable audience for purposes that serve us, monetary or ideological, someone else will. And as a result, we will miss out on the huge opportunity to sell them stuff, to scam them out of their money, or to amplify our ideologies, reach through them. This way of thinking is a bit like thinking of people as a $20 bill, just sitting there on the ground, you know that money is not yours, but if you don't take it, someone else will. From that perspective, the world is filled with $20 bills just sitting there, unscammed. So you go around and collect them, taking their resources or altering their ideology before someone else does it first. I use the term call of the commons because this is a call to action that is seemingly justified by the tragedy of the commons, a situation in which a shared public resource will almost always be abused by someone until it's used up, which then ruins that resource for everyone. This tendency is the consequence of $20 bill on the ground thinking, where everything is perceived as being zero sum, and a shared resource then should be milked for all it's worth, for your personal benefit, because if you don't use it and take all that you can, someone else will. Even if that resource provides enough for everyone to have a moderate amount of something, forever, so long as no one goes overboard, at some point, someone will almost inevitably go overboard and take more than their fair share, either justifying to themselves that their fair share should be more than everyone else's, or using the aforementioned justification about money and morality and feeding their family, even at the expense of everyone else's family. They assume that because they are thinking this way, understanding the possibility of taking what they can, that everyone else is too. And that assumption, that call, is what catalyzes bad behavior that might otherwise be held in check 
by social norms, or by low-level regulations. Now, the resource in question in this particular case is the time and attention of people, all the people, everyone on the planet, but more specifically, at least for now, all the people who have email addresses or phone numbers, people who are accessible via these communication methods. And though this is not a shared resource in the same way that a field suitable for grazing sheep is a shared resource, it's definitely a pool that we could all just agree not to tap or not to overtap. But if we do, or if some of us do, that still leaves all the people who have fewer scruples, who are willing to take that extra step to try to outcompete the other guy, who are better at justifying away bad behavior to themselves, better off. And that means those who hold back, who don't overgraze, who do not spam and robocall, are actually punished for their adherence to the law or to common social standards. So this gives an advantage to bad actors within a particular space. And before long, you have an auto-dialer market that is almost completely saturated with fraudsters and the morally flexible. And in a lot of cases, the political and social norms will eventually come to align themselves with those powerful people and entities, regardless of how they achieved that power. And that then tends to bake that alignment, those preferences, that way of doing things more firmly into the social strata and into law in some cases. Every new technology grants us new abilities. And with each new empowering step, each new wonder of the modern world, we grow in all kinds of ways, many of which, when utilized accordingly, allow us to claim outsized portions of the social pie of money, prestige, resources, other people's time and attention, and so on. It is almost impossible to separate the negative consequences from the positive consequences when we develop new technology, because they're very often one in the same. The very things that made email such an incredible development and remarkably beneficial for the billions of people who have been able to use it also make it a potent weapon for those who wish to do harm and a valuable asset for those who wish to victimize others for their own personal gain. One such facet of the modern technological world serving as both miracle and curse is the ability to produce at previously unimaginable scale. And this applies to the tangible and the intangible, and with equally remarkable and deleterious effects. Consider how easy it is, for instance, to broadcast something today compared to 50 years ago. 50 years ago, to get on the radio, on TV, in a newspaper, you had to either be immensely wealthy, able to control some type of publication, some kind of channel or network, or you had to be granted access by the gatekeepers who did, something that could not be guaranteed, and it was a privilege that was more often than not relegated to the fortunate few. Today, you can shoot a quick video and post it on dozens of websites, potentially reaching millions of people in just a few seconds for free. You can publish a thought before you've really thought it through. You can publish a podcast for a budget of nearly nothing if you choose to do so. The same is true in slightly different ways of what we produce for the physical world. Decades ago, it was immensely costly to produce tangible goods. Today, due to evolutions in our machines, our software, our systems and the cogs in those systems, 
both people cogs and non-people cogs. You can write a book and get a one-off print-on-demand copy of that book shipped to you wherever you happen to be for less than $5. You can get a single ultra-specific component for a million-dollar machine 3D printed for a couple of bucks. Or you can print a million of that same part for one-tenth of that price per unit. This increase in access in broadcast and production capability is one of the best things about living in the modern world. That gatekeepers can no longer reliably shape the conversation has diluted the advantage once held by the entrenched powerful and spread it more broadly amongst the vox populi. At the same time, though, this decentralization of production capability has also led to some of the most serious issues that we face as a species. Yes, it's very cool that I can make a million of something, a million little plastic souvenir-style Statue of Liberties, let's say, for a very low cost. But because I can, maybe I will. Maybe I'll do it not because I think producing a million tiny plastic Statue of Liberties will be valuable to anyone, but because it's possible. And it might give me an advantage, economically or ideologically, over all the other people who are competing with me for the same finite resources. The same is true of the non-tangible world. It may not be valuable for me, or for anyone, if I post a YouTube video of a guy getting kicked in the crotch. But the cost of doing so is zero. So I might as well, just in case it makes me famous, just in case it proves to be a decisive advantage over my fellow YouTube-capable citizen. When you slam together the aforementioned tragedy of the commons and the ability to mass-produce things and content and communication of all kinds, what you end up with is noise. Noise and piles of trash and a never-ending cycle of production for the sake of production. Those produced things will be followed by efforts to monetize them, to make valuable things that are not inherently valuable, and that in turn feeds the cycle of infinite production and consumption that has become so fundamental to the way that the global economy operates, that it's difficult to imagine what would happen to the world, to all the good things that we have built and created, if that propensity toward bloat ever subsided. Our whole system is predicated on that growth. And because it's so easy to keep churning out new whatevers at an unbridled pace, it's difficult to imagine, too, how such a slowdown could ever actually be accomplished should we decide that it's necessary. It's not a super revelatory statement that all new technologies and systems are double-edged swords, even if their downsides are not immediately apparent as they're being promoted or as they're being made available. But because this type of production and broadcast-oriented technology and system is so integral to all the others, it's an important focal point within an already important area of inquiry. Robocalls and spam and pop-ups and billboards and the endless marketing messages that you get in your mailbox and see everywhere you look, every waking moment of your life, they are all products of the same forces that incentivize us to overproduce products, waste mountains of perfectly good food, to spend large percentages of our total lifespans working at jobs that are not fulfilling on a personal level or a societal level. We create noise in all of these spaces because we can, and because we are nudged toward doing so by all that momentum. 
the solutions to these problems, unfortunately, also tend to come tethered to substantial downsides. If you limit broadcast capabilities, you put gatekeepers back in place and silence those who do not have the prestige or power to own their own network. If you raise the price of production or make the means of production less accessible, you end up with some kind of vaguely feudal system where the power aggregates almost exclusively with the few rather than being dispersed amongst the many. If you regulate what can be said on the internet, you risk imposing thought law on the population, enshrining yesterday's ideologies on tomorrow's citizenry, and hindering both cultural and moral evolution. If you regulate what can be produced, what sorts of tangible goods can be manufactured, you risk slowing down the engine of production that gives us all of these wonderful things. And much of what has been produced is truly wondrous. It's important to remember that, even while discussing the downsides of the mechanisms that grant us these often remarkable and valuable things. Any regulation, any attempt by the government to clamp down on this production will almost certainly be flawed in its application by its very nature. A limitation on production of anything will be biased toward the priorities and prejudices of those who write, pass, and enforce the laws. In practice, that tends to mean that they are often slanted toward relatively powerful people and opinions that are acceptable to the mainstream majority, and limitations that make sense to older generations, as they tend to be the ones predominantly holding the reins of political power within any society for myriad reasons. This, like many other issues today, I think, falls into the very unfortunate category of being something that is difficult or even impossible to solve at scale and any time in the immediate future. It's something for which we don't have the infrastructure, the governance, the economic formulae, the language even, to intelligently and productively discuss, much less act upon. I mean, how would you promote slowing down the economy to a collection of people who have only ever known growth, except in cases of war or famine? How would you promote producing fewer things to corporations that have only been exposed to the gospel of more, and in a lot of ways only exist to continuously produce and grow themselves? How would you convince people around the world to be more intentional in how they use these powers they've been granted, when everything in their lives is telling them that the frantic, non-stop use of those powers is one of the few methods available by which they can achieve vertical social movement. There very well might be a solution to this problem, just waiting to be discovered, but anytime I think it through, all I can come up with is that it's probably going to have to be a ground-up sort of thing. Individuals taking responsibility for their own actions and then allowing that mentality, that ideology, to slowly creep its way up the food chain until norms shift, and anyone who tries to take advantage, who tries to make the commons tragic by using up resources that should belong to the whole, and which are practically infinite so long as no one abuses the system, to make sure those people are punished or outcast in some way. Some meaningful way, too. Because as things stand today, even in spaces where that philosophy is supposedly applied, is supposed to be the norm, the punishments are seldom sufficient to outweigh the short-term individual benefits of breaking those rules and grabbing what they can. It's possible 
that one of the continuous string of innovations that have emerged as a consequence of this flawed system will actually solve it or will move us into some new stage of development, economic, civilizational, whatever you want to call it, into a world in which we are, just by virtue of existing in that way, consuming less, staying within our means, and perhaps even living within some kind of post-scarcity situation in most meaningful ways, where noise is no longer a relevant term, because both production and consumption capabilities have changed dramatically to the point where they are both practically infinite. For the moment, though, this is one of those root system-like structures that underpins a great deal of what happens in the world. So it's worth keeping it in mind as you read and watch and listen to the news and try to put all the pieces together, and as you think about how you manage your own life, your own relationship with these innovations, and your place within those more foundational systems that support them. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called The Chicken Shit Club by Jesse Isinger. This is a book that, to be perfectly honest, was a whole lot drier than I thought it would be. It is well written. It's just very coldly journalistic, and it deals with a whole lot of topics that, in isolation, could be very confusing and even boring but when crammed together, paint a very interesting picture of the revolving doors, the conflicts of interest, and the instances of regulatory capture that severely diminish and dampen the punishment of white-collar criminals in the United States. And it starts with some stories from the 70s, but it really starts to take off in the early 2000s with a whole lot of scandals that you will probably recognize in a vague way, but which you will come to know in a very intimate way over the course of this book. This is a book that is disheartening, but it is full of valuable information and it includes a lot of additional, very rich and thorough context for a lot of the things that I talk about on this show. Basically, everything that connects to power and prosecution and corporations and the government, and again, why white-collar criminals tend not to get the punishments that it seems like they deserve based on the scale of the damage that they cause. This is the book to read if you want to know more about that. Again, the title is The Chicken Shit Club, and the author is Jesse Isinger. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find my blog at xllifestyle.com, and you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode at letsknowthings.com. You can find the tour dates and get your tickets for my tour events at becomingtour.com, and you can feel free to reach out and say hello on your social network of choice. I am at Colin is my name, pretty much everywhere. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.